Good morning again, everybody. Let's begin with prayer. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, our Lord, our Rock, and our Redeemer. Amen. I just want to begin today by saying, Ethan, 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 your baptismal water spilt all over my sermon notes, (laughs) and I can't see a thing. And so if I get stuck somewhere, I'm coming to you, okay? You, go, you better be ready to tell me what's going on, okay? <laughs> okay. I read a story recently um, about an old lady who was coming out of the supermarket with her bags. She approached her car, and she was startled to find four strange men sitting in her car. So what did she do? Uh, she dropped her bags reached into her purse, pulled out a handgun, and in a forceful voice said, Get out of the car! I have a gun and I know how to use it! To which the men, they didn't need another invitation. They jumped out of that car and they ran for their lives. The lady was shaken, you can understand. She picked up her bags and she put them into the car and then she got into the driver's side and she brought out her keys. She put her keys into the ignition, except the problem was they didn't go into the ignition once, twice, until she realized it wasn't her car. (laughs) She got out of the car, embarrassed. She looks around for the men. They had run off by now, and she went four over, same make, same model, same color. She puts her groceries into her car, drives straight to the police station, and there she turns herself in. As she's turning herself in, the sergeant at the desk begins to laugh. Why? Because he points across the room as he hears her story, and says, there's four men over there who are reporting a mugging and a car thief of a woman with white hair under five foot tall with a big handgun. (laughs) No charges were filed. It was all understood. She didn't know it, but that car didn't belong to her. She thought it did, but it didn't. Have you ever had something in your possession or maybe gotten something that you thought was yours, but it really, really wasn't? I have a story. When I was about your age, Ethan, about in sixth grade, I was going around the neighborhood. Maybe you've heard me tell this story before. With my brother, we were pushing the lawnmower around, going door to door, trying to get some business. When we found a lost dog on a street down from us, we picked up the dog and took it home in the hopes that mom and dad would help us adopt this lost dog. And after a day and a night and another day, Long story short, we realized we had taken that dog off of their front lawn where that dog lived. (laughs) We thought that that dog would belong to us. We had to give it back. It wasn't ours. Think Think about things for just a second. Your car, your career, your degree, all the work that you put into school, all the work you're putting into school, your money, your investments, your house, your food, your everything. Do they really belong to you? God's answer in First Chronicles 29 is this. You think that they belong to you and you own them and they're yours, but really? He owns it all. He owns it all. And the he I'm talking about is God. God owns it all. And until we realize that God owns it all, I don't believe that we can truly appreciate everything that we have in our life and live that life that God calls us to live, a life of thanksgiving, a life of hope, and a life of joy. 
And so this morning, we'll look into these words in the Old Testament. This is about a thousand years before Jesus, but very, very good words to look at from King David. He was the king of the Jewish people, the Israelites, and um, most popular king of the nation. He's an old man now, and he's speaking to his people. And three things that we're going to learn from David in these words. Number one, we're going to learn how little we have. Number two, how generously God gives to us. And number three, how we respond. Okay, and today's Generosity Sunday. It's especially important to know why and how we respond to everything that God has given us, and we're going to look into all three of these. How little we have, how generously God gives, and how, little we, res- and how we respond. The background to 1 Chronicles 29 is this. Um, King David, like I said, has, uh, is well along in years, and he has a desire on his heart that he wants to tell all of his leadership in Israel about. He calls in all of the mayors, all the governors, all of the military generals from every rank. He calls in all the financial secretaries, his palace secretaries. He calls in anybody and everybody that has anything to do with everything leadership in Israel. This is the chapter before 29. He calls them into a convention in Jerusalem, and there, at that convention, he addresses them. You can, just, you can see him as he's addressing all of these important people, including, it says, the mighty men and the, and, and the brave men, the special ops units in the army, okay? These are like your green berets that are there. The, very, the best of the best are there at this convention. He, he stands up, and everybody hushes. And King David says to his people, my people, the people of Israel, I have a desire on my heart that I've wanted to do my whole life, but I haven't been able to do. My desire is to build a house for God on earth called the temple. Temple had never been built before for God, the Lord God, the true God. And David said, I wanted to go ahead and do that. Why? Because God went homeless for all of the time that he was in Israel's history. He went homeless to furnish his people with houses and homes and palaces. That's important to keep in your mind. This is what uh, that means. God lived on earth with his people on a place that he said he put his presence, this box called the Ark of the Covenant. You've heard of probably the Ark of the Covenant before. That Ark was the place where God said, I put my presence, and his presence lived in a tent, okay? Throughout the years that Israel was wandering in the desert, he lived in a tent. As they walked into the promised land like God promised he would give these people, it went ahead of them. It crossed the Jordan. God's presence in that ark split the Jordan River. It went around Jericho, and it brought down the walls of Jericho. It fought all of Israel's battle for Israel, God's presence. And it helped them establish wealth. It helped them establish their homes, and it helped David establish this beautiful palace that he's living in. But the whole time... God didn't have a house for himself. Isn't it just like God to go homeless while furnishing his people with palaces and homes? For a while, it was neglected. That Ark of the Covenant, it was gathering dust in somebody's house until David said, I have this desire to bring that Ark out of that house, out of the dust, and bring it into Jerusalem and give it its rightful place again. So he prays to God, and this is all what he says to his people. I asked God if I could build the temple for him, this grand, magnificent structure. But God said, no. Can you believe that? Imagine having a desire in your heart. You want to do something for the world. You want to do something for your family. And God says, no. Why? Because David, God says, you have spilt blood. You've gone to war. You've gone to battle, and you have this blood on your hands. That job for building the temple isn't reserved for you. But the job for building the temple is reserved for your son, Solomon. 
Solomon would be the one that builds the temple, God said, not you. We might become disappointed, and David might have been disappointed in the moment too, but David said, I'm turning my disappointment into worship. Instead of building the temple, I'm going to get together all the stones, I'm going to get together all the gold, I'm going to get together all the materials, I'm going to put together the blueprints so that I can be part of this worship of building the temple that my son will do. This is the background to First Chronicles 29. And here we go, in verse 1 it says, in front of this big convention that David has in Jerusalem, Then King David said to the whole assembly, My son Solomon, the one whom God has chosen, chosen to be king and chosen to build the temple, is young and inexperienced. He's probably underneath 20 years old, probably college age, maybe even less. The task is great because this palatial structure is not for man but for the Lord God. It's condescending for the creator to be built a temple by its creation, for us to come back to God who made us and then to build him a temple. And so David is saying, if we're going to build him a temple, we have to do it to the highest standard that we can. God's going to be built a temple, and that temple is going to reflect the glory that God has. And so he goes into this great task and everything that he's pouring into it. Verse 2, With all my resources... I have provided for the temple of my God gold for the gold work, silver for the silver, bronze for the bronze, iron for the iron, wood for the wood, as well as onyx and the settings, turquoise, stones of various colors, and all kinds of fine stones and marble, all of these in large quantities. And right there, you're probably thinking the thing that I thought when I first read this is, David, dude, we know you're rich. You don't have to brag about it, but you have a lot, a lot of stuff. It kind of sounds arrogant, doesn't it? The way that he says, I'm giving all my stuff. Do you see me giving up here? I'm giving everything to God. You might be thinking as one of those army generals and one of those important people, I left my work to come and listen to this guy talk about how much he gives, what a great philanthropist he is. But hold on, just a second, hold on. Because in the next couple of verses, we're going to learn, is David really being arrogant? Or is he about to teach us something about how little we have? Verse 10, David praised the Lord in the presence of the whole assembly, saying, Praise be to you, Lord, the God of our father Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. Yours, Lord, is the greatness and the power, and the glory and the majesty and the splendor. For everything in heaven and earth is yours. Yours, Lord, is the kingdom. You are exalted as head over all. Is David bragging? The answer is actually yes, he is bragging. But who's he bragging about? He's bragging about God. You, God, have the glory and the power. You have all the riches in the world. Imagine him saying to the crowd, you crowd, you leaders, you mayors, you governors, verse 11, who is it that gives you greatness and power? You business owners, You middle managers, you people who have a position at work over other people, who is it that gives you your power and your greatness? Did you earn it or did God give it to you? Yours is the greatness and the power. Everything in heaven and earth is yours. And then David preaches to himself, yours, Lord, is the kingdom later on in verse 11. Is that your kingdom, David? Does the president rule the United States? Who is it that rules every nation under earth? God. 
And how many votes did he need? Zero, because he's God over everything, every nation, without even needing your vote. His is everything. His is even all the nations. Okay, he keeps on going in verse 12. Wealth and honor come from you. You are the ruler of all things. In your hands are strength and power to exalt and give strength to all. Now, our God, we give you thanks and praise your glorious name. You financers, you people who run my palace, you, my personal accountants that are out there, is that really your money? Is that really my money? Where does all that wealth come from? Whose wealth really is that? You at-home budgeters. Yours, God. It's all his. It's all his. Who gets the glory and the praise and the power? You green berets, you special ops. Who gives you your strength? Who gives you your power? It's God. It's all his. So until we realize how much actually we really have, not even my career, not even my power, not even my strength, not even my position at work is mine, but it's a gift to me. We can't know how little we have and we'll never appreciate how much God has given us in our life. So, all my resources are all God's. Psalm 24, verse 1 says, The earth is the Lord and everything in it, the world and all who dwell in it. I don't have this experience very often because I don't stay in these types of hotels. But when I was on a study tour in Turkey and in um, Greece during seminary, the company that, the, the agency that lined up our tours, they put us in like the nicest hotels in Athens and Istanbul. It was pretty sweet. When we got to the hotel, you normally get your bag out of the van or the bus in our case, and then you'd roll that bag to your room. But what happened when we got off the bus the first time? They said, no, 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 don't touch the bags. Why? Because we've already paid the gratuity to have the bellboy do it. And so instead of bringing that bag up to my room myself, what do you do? We got out of the bus. They brought all the bags for us, and all we did was point to our bag, and they brought it to our room. Pretty sweet. Took advantage of that for the time that I did. I didn't see that bag until after supper in my room. And by the way, when it was time to leave, I would put my bag outside of the room with my roommate, and it would have a tag on it. I wouldn't see that bag again until the next hotel. That's pretty awesome, isn't it? God has given you and me the job of being bellboy. Do you think it crossed that bellboy's mind that I'm giving him that bag and all the possessions in it? (laughs) If that crosses his mind, he's going to get fired pretty soon. He's a manager or a steward. That's where we get the church term stewardship. It's not actually his bag. And all the stuff that God has given us is actually not all of our stuff, but he's given you your clothes. He's given you your Facebook page. He's given you your career. He's given you your money. He's given you everything so that you can be the manager of that thing and deliver it back to him in what we call stewardship. Taking care of everything that he's given us. It's not ours. All my resources are all God's. That's how little we have. Number two, part two. How generously God gives. David keeps on talking. Verse 14. But who am I and who are my people that we should be able to give as generously as this? Everything comes from you and we have given you only what comes from your hand. We are foreigners and strangers in your sight as well as all of our ancestors. Our days on earth are like a shadow without hope. Lord our God, all this abundance that we have provided for building you a temple for your holy name 
comes from your hand, and all of it belongs to you. How do you become a gracious, generous, thankful bellhop in God's sight? It starts with relationship. And you can see where their relationship started. The relationship started there in verse 15 of this prayer when David says, We, the Jewish people, the the nation of Israel, are foreigners and strangers in your sight. Do you know where God found Israel? They were slaves in Egypt. And he was the one that found this nothing, this nobody, this zero, and delivered them and said, I'm going to adopt you as my own child. I'm going to take you to, to, to take you with my strength through the desert. I'm going to deliver you and from all the people that are keeping the land from you, and I'm going to give you this home. I'm going to make you and give you an identity. God took these people that had no identity, nobodies, that were nothing in God's sight, people whose days on earth are like a shadow without hope, and he entered into their life and gave them hope. Not just gave them palaces and gave them houses and gave them stuff, but he gave them the greatest hope, which was eternal life. Remember earlier that I said this? I said, isn't it just like God to go homeless while furnishing his people with palaces and homes? Well, the truth is, is that God did the same for you. Jesus once said, foxes have holes and birds have nests. But the Son of Man, talking about himself, Jesus, the Son of Man has nowhere to what? Rest his head. Jesus went homeless, he said. In other words, God, think about Jesus. He's richer in heaven. He owns the whole world. He's more rich than a million Saudi Arabias and Americas combined. It says in Philippians chapter 2 that God lowered himself to become a servant. And not just a servant, but to be a bellhop. The servant of a servant for you and for me. How did he do that? When he saw that you and I were sinners, that we were not gracious and not generous, not good givers and good stewards of all of his gifts, all the times that we floundered and we wandered away from him in our thoughts and our words and our actions called sin, he looked at us and saw us as a nobody. But he went homeless and without a pillow. Why? Because he wanted to live the life that you and I could never live, a perfect life. He never sinned once. And then he took that perfect life that he lived in our place and he was sacrificed on a Roman cross in the first century A.D. And there at the Roman cross, it says that the wrath of God was on him and he suffered hell for you and me so that we never would. Talk about a servant. (laughs) Talk about a Savior that loves us so much that it creates a new attitude in our heart about not just God, but the gifts that God gives us the luggage that he points to, and he says, take care of it. God gave up all, so you have all. The attitude that this creates, this love that God has given us, this family that he's brought us into, creates such an organic, natural response. Not that we could earn anything from God, because he gave us everything, but it, it, it changes our hearts to look at his gifts and look at God in a totally different light, a God that loves us, a God that has called us to be his child through his grace, like we saw today in baptism, that we want to respond with thankfulness and stewardship. And that's where part three comes in. How generous, I'm sorry, how we respond. Verse 17, I know, my God, that you test the heart and are pleased with integrity. All these things I have given willingly and with honest intent, And now I have seen with joy how willingly your people who are here have given to you 
Lord, the God of our fathers Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, keep these desires and our thoughts and thoughts in our hearts of your people forever and keep their hearts loyal to you. Do you know what God would rather have than all of your money and your whole house and everything that you own? You know what he would rather have? This is saying your heart. He would rather have your heart. Look at the screen. Look how many times he says heart. No less than three times David is calling his people as they give, not to the amount that they give. He named off everything that he gave, but none of that would mean anything if it wasn't given from the heart. And look what the heart produces. Integrity, a willingness, an honesty about giving, a joyful giving, a a desire of the heart to keep on giving and giving back to God because God has given everything to you. Husbands, do you remember shopping for that ring? Nod. (laughs) You have to remember that. Why did you, like me, want to go out and find the best ring that you can buy for your money? Was it because you were under compulsion to get a really nice ring? Or did you go out there and say, I want to get the very best ring for this woman that I love so much because I love her from my heart? And so I'm going to look at the carrot and the cut and everything else, all the other C's that the salesman tells me that I need to have on this ring. I go out there and I buy the ring. And I didn't have $10,000, but I did have something that I could give. And I wanted to give the very best to that person. Why? Because I love that person. It's from the heart. God is saying this, the same way that you would have that kind of relationship with another person, I want a heart response from you that's truly love. Um, I want your heart to be in your giving. I want your heart to be in your stewardship. I want your heart to be in everything that you do, from the clothes that you put on to the work that you do to the parenting that you undergo. Everything. I want your heart to be in it. I've said this to you if I visited you on an every member visit this round. And I'll say it here again. You can be a person who gives a million dollars to charities and to churches every year, and you can be a very poor giver. You can be a person that gives $50 to charities and to churches, and you can be a very good giver. Why? It's not the amount. It's from your heart. It's from your heart, and so when we come today on a day like Generosity Sunday, God is looking for your heart. He's not looking for the amount. He's looking for the amount of love that you are reflecting from him that he's given you. And when you realize that he has given you all, then your heart responds with joy. If your heart does not reflect what you see up on the screen, if it's under compulsion, if it's not joyful, if it is feeling coerced, then go back to part two and see how much God has loved you. And stay there as long as you need to for your heart to give joyfully and generously back to God. Giving to God is always heartfelt and voluntary. In 2 Corinthians 9, this is a New Testament book, it says the same thing. It says, not to give under compulsion, but God loves a cheerful giver. If you're visiting with us today, um, then this is news to you, but if you are a regular tender here, today is Generosity Sunday where each and every one of us has taken a personal worship time in the past, in the past week or two weeks, where we've sit, sat down with our family and we've said, this is how I want to worship you, God, with my heart and with my gifts. 
And we're, we, like David and all these people that are coming together at this convention, are giving as one, but as also as individuals worshiping with, a, with one heart. But Generosity Sunday isn't just a giving plan. It's not. And it's not just one day. Generosity Sunday is not the be-all and end-all of generosity or of stewardship. Your stewardship goes into your home, goes into your car, goes into everything that you use. For example, um, another David in my life, his name, uh, well, let's just call him David. He's David, my little sister's godfather. He lives in Chicago, and he is an elevator attendant at a fancy um, apartment there. He doesn't make a lot of money, but what he does is he does give to his church. He's a Christian, and he's also a Jew. So when he works, he uses his work time, and he looks at his work time as a time to, to be a steward of God's gift of time. When the people come into his elevator, he estimates that he has about 20 seconds. Talk about a captive audience. And he told me that he especially likes speaking to his fellow Jews who don't know Jesus. About who? About Jesus. And he takes that time from the first floor to whatever floor they're going to to tell them about the truth of Jesus in their lives. Talk about stewardship of time. How about you? Some of you teens, you've told me this before, that even your video games are a way that you can use for stewardship for God. Do you know how? Have any of you done this before? You're playing live, somebody across the world. You're chatting, maybe in the chat box or maybe over the microphone. You've told me this, that you've actually shared Jesus with another person using your video game. Or should I say God's video game? God's car, God's Facebook page, God's money, God's investments, God's clothes, God's everything. My prayer then today is this, that we take away from First Chronicles 29, is that you realize how little that we actually have. You know how generously God gives. And now respond with a heart that's full of joy and generosity. Amen.